do appreciate the presence of uh, each one this evening. You know, when you look up on the screen and see the first slide has to do with the book of Revelation, it strikes fear in the heart of every Bible student. Uh, the book of Revelation can be an intimidating study. It's challenging, lots of figures and symbols and uh, material that we, we're not familiar with. Uh, it's not written in the same style as uh, the epistles are, or the narrative portions of the Bible are. And all of that proves to be a challenge for us. It's difficult. Uh, there's uh, maybe a, a lack of precision in our ability to, uh, to say definitively what each, each passage is about or what each uh, segment of it refers to. Sometimes you have to say a lot of, well, uh, it may be this, or here are a couple of options, or I think it's more likely this than that. And for some people, that's, uh, that's just not the kind of Bible study they like to do. And, and so sometimes it, uh, people are turned away from it. Uh, but uh, what we're going to do tonight is a continuation of what we did last week. We're going to bypass all the difficult parts of the book of Revelation. Not all of it is altogether difficult. Uh, chapters 1, 2, 3 uh, are fairly straightforward, as I think are the, the last couple of chapters in the book. But, but we're going to bypass all the all the kind of cryptic portions of the book. And so we're not going to try to talk about what the number 666 represents or, or the Battle of Armageddon or not talk about when it was written, whether it's before 70 A.D. or uh, at the end of the first century. We're not going to talk, try to identify who uh, the harlot is or who Babylon is. We might have a little something to say about that. But that's not going to be take up very much of our attention tonight. Uh, we're going to really talk about what the book is about. Is it about the fall of Jerusalem or the fall of the Roman Empire or, or something else? We're not going to talk about those things. We're going to talk about something, as we started last Sunday morning, talk about something that we can really latch on to and seek our teeth in, whether we understand the other portions of the book or not. We're going to talk about Revelation as a guide to worship. And so, as I said a moment ago, we started this last Sunday morning. We're going to continue and finish up tonight. And if you'll recall, if you were here last Sunday morning, we noted that there are times in the book, places in the book, where uh, heavenly beings, even people on earth, even those under the earth, will break out in worship. And uh, we started looking at those last week, and we hope that we're able to use these passages to inform our worship as a guide for our worship. Everybody who's here tonight wants worship to be just invigorating, you know, uplifting and inspiring. And maybe a study like this will, will help. Uh, the key to all of that, of course, is our attitude and the way we approach worship. And if we can approach worship better, if our attitude can be trained uh, to worship better, well, then it's, uh, it's, it's time well spent. It's a study that's well spent. So let's spend a couple of minutes just reviewing the things that we looked at last week. And so we looked at chapter 4 and verse 8. We noted that this passage takes place as John in the book of Revelation is describing what he saw in a vision as he saw one sitting on the throne. And we looked at that, we looked at that in some detail. And there were the one is sitting on the throne, just very powerful scene. And there are heavenly creatures around the throne, and they are worshiping God perpetually and continually. And this is what they're saying. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, 
who was and who is and who is to come. And we noted at the time that every one of those statements is worthy of our consideration. The thrice repeated word holy, God is holy to the highest degree. The highest expression of holiness is found in God. He is the Lord. He is master. Uh, he has all authority. He is God. He possesses the divine nature and every attribute that comes along with that. He was, He is, and He is to come. Reminds us of the way God describes Himself to Moses at the burning bush. The I Am. And that last section of that, the one who is to come, uh, reminds us that He is coming, the Lord is coming in judgment. But we spend most of our time talking about God as the Almighty. That's not a difficult word to understand, is it? The Almighty means pretty much what it, what it suggests. He has all might. He has all power. And so as the being who is sitting on the throne with all power, all authority, He's worthy of our worship. These heavenly beings worship Him day and night. They worship Him continually, praising Him, bowing before Him, because He is the Almighty One. And if that's their response, and they're, when they're in the presence of God, how much more should it be our response as well? The second passage we looked at, chapter 4 and verse 11, a similar scene, in fact the same scene, and now we find uh, these 24 elders bowing before Him, worshiping Him who lives forever and ever, casting their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. So we talked about God as the Creator. Why is He worthy of our worship? Because He is the Almighty. Why is He worthy of our worship? Because He's the Creator. He has created everything. He has created all things. And we can say a lot about that. He created all things out of nothing. He created all things through His Word. The implications of God as Creator include His power, His eternity, He is eternal, His wisdom, His goodness, His authority. Remember we said what we learn from God as Creator and us as the creation is God is big and we are small. Simply a, a kind of a succinct way to say it. He is big, we are, we are small. And so we worship Him, not just because He is the Creator. He is our Creator. And so we honor Him and praise Him in our worship uh, because of that. It's interesting to me that the book of Revelation is not primarily about God as Creator. <laughs> it's more about God as Judge uh, and God as Savior. But here He's worshiped because He is our Creator. And the fact that that's sort of interjected into the, the, the themes of Revelation makes it even more impressive to me that uh, this, is, uh, this is getting this attention. Then the third passage we looked at, Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals. The one who's sitting on the throne has a book in his hand, or a scroll in his hand, is sealed up with seven seals. A search is made throughout heaven to find someone who's worthy to open the book and to reveal its contents. No one is worthy. And then a lamb who has been slain, uh, steps forward, worthy to take the book. And when he takes the book, well then all of heaven breaks out in worship. Worthy are you to take the book and break its seals. 
You are slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Here, worship is directed to the Lamb who is worthy, has the authority to take the book. Not everyone else was able to take the book, but the Lamb was able to take the book. And we combine this with a couple of other passages, chapter 5 and verse 12. Worthy is the Lamb which was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And then chapter 5 and verse 14. To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. We made the point that they're being worshipped together. And so the same worship that's directed to the one sitting on the throne, God the Father, is also being directed to the Lamb. Same worship in the same way, in the same words. It's not that the one sitting on the throne is receiving a higher degree of worship and the Lamb a lesser degree of worship, both receiving the same, the same worship. Now, why is that? Because they are equals. And so the Word of God, the Lamb of God, is equal to God the Father who is sitting on the throne. And that's supported, of course, throughout the New Testament. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then eventually, chapter 1 of John and verse 14 says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so the Word, or the Lamb in this particular passage, is equal with God the Father and is worthy of our worship. In fact, we tried to make the point last week, we tried to stress the point, that those who worship the Lamb include not only those in heaven, but those under the earth, and even those who are on the earth. And so those who are on the earth are directing their praise to the Lamb, in a, in a way, matter equal with the praise that they direct to the Father. And so the Lamb is worthy of our worship in this particular passage, because He, through His blood, purchased for God uh, uh, people and made them a kingdom and priests. He's worthy of our devotion and adoration because He gave His life for us and purchased us with His blood. I hope that we give some thought to those kinds of things as we come to worship. Maybe if we can think about those things and think about them in a serious way, well, that will help our worship. That will help our worship become more effective if we think about who it is we are worshiping the one who's sitting on the throne, the Almighty, the one who's created us. We are worshiping the Lamb who is equal with the one sitting on the throne who shed His blood so that we might be a kingdom and priests before God. If we can think about those things, maybe that will help the quality of our worship. And that's where we stopped last week, but now we're going to continue. Let's go to chapter 11. So we've gone from the beginning of the book of Revelation. Now we're sort of in the middle of the book of Revelation. Chapter 11, we're going to look at verses 17 and 18. Chapter 11 of Revelation. and Let's begin in verse 15. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and His Christ. And He will reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, we give, thanks, uh, we give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and who were, because you've taken your great power and have begun to reign. And the nations were enraged, and your wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, the small and the great.' 
and to destroy those who destroy the earth. And so that's, uh, uh, I think, a little bit more than I've got on the screen there, but that tries to encompass the whole, kind of the whole section here. And so we're not going to go into the details about the seventh trumpet. We're going to try to explain what the seventh trumpet is and, and what, it, uh, you know, what, it, what, it, what it's looked forward to, only to say that chapter 10 and verse 7 tells us that when the seventh trumpet sounds, when the voice of the seventh angel sounds, then the mystery of God is finished as He has preached to His servants, the prophets. And so, this, and we're not, again, not going to try to identify any more than that. When the seventh angel sounds, well, then the mystery of God is finished. Whatever the issue is, God has imposed His will on the issue, and the issue is settled. There's no more to be said about it. There's no more to be done about it. The mystery of God is finished. And when the mystery of God is finished, then the heavenly beings, they break out in worship. And so they've, they've seen the process. They've seen God impose His will. They see God bring all of this to, to, to completion. Now we worship. Now we worship Him. Now we break out in worship. And what do they say? We give you thanks, O Lord God, the Almighty, who are and were. Talked about some of those already. Because you've taken your great power and begun to reign. They, their worship consists of thanksgiving. They worship God because He reigns. And in that reign, He took vengeance on the nations and rewarded the faithful. And so they've seen the process. They've seen what God has been doing God in His power, and His wisdom, His authority has taken vengeance on those who oppose Him and His people, and He's rewarded His people. You can see that in chapter 11, verse 18. The nations were enraged, and your wrath came, and the time came for the dead to be judged, and the time to reward your bondservants. And so they see that, they understand it. They see God's exerting His power and His authority, bringing all this to a conclusion, and we are thankful we give you our thanks for the things that you've done. It may appear sometimes that the kings of the earth have ultimate authority, but they do not. God is king. God rules, and His will will be accomplished in the earth. A couple of Old Testament passages just sort of reinforce that idea. There are several, of course, that we could turn to. But the 22nd Psalm and verse 28 says, The kingdom is the Lord's, and He rules over the nations. The kingdom is the Lord's. It looks like kings of the earth are in charge, and they're, they're having their way. But the truth is that the Lord is the king over the earth, and He's going to impose His will and in His own time. And He's going to act on behalf of His people, and He's going to come in judgment against those who oppose Him. Isaiah 40 and verse 15 simply says that the nations are like a drop from a bucket uh, to, to God. Just, just a little drop, as powerful as you know, the Roman Empire was or the Babylonian Empire was, that's, that's nothing. They are mere weaklings compared to God, like a drop from a bucket. God is a God of truth and justice and righteousness his rule over the nations are always guided by these attributes. He always reigns in truth and justice and righteousness. He opposes evil. He opposes the proud and the corrupt kingdoms of men. 
And God always rules on behalf of His people and brings about justice for them in truth and righteousness. While earthly kings often mistreat God's people. And for those things we are thankful, right? God is a God of truth and justice and righteousness. As a matter of fact, the 89th Psalm in verse 14 says that justice and righteousness are the foundation of His throne. He cannot act in any way other than truth and righteousness. He will always act according to those principles on behalf of His people, always. And He will always act, being guided by those principles, against those who oppose Him, always. And for that, we're thankful. Thanksgiving should constitute a part of our worship. You see, that's how this begins. We give you thanks, O Lord, because of what you've done, how you have come in response against those who are opposing us and how you vindicated us. We are thankful for what you've done. And so thanksgiving should be a part of our worship. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 18 says, Give thanks in everything. In everything, be, be, be thankful. In chapter 5 of 1 Thessalonians in verse 20, always give thanks. Always give thanks. Now what do you have to be thankful for? Just think about that for a moment. What, what do you have? What do you have to be thankful for? How has our King blessed us as citizens of His kingdom? Well, to ask the question, is, it's, it's almost ridiculous, isn't it? <laughs> for us to ask, well, well has God blessed me? It's been, he's blessed me in so many ways, <laughs> it's almost ridiculous to ask the question. But it's worth asking and thinking about a little bit, especially as we approach worship. Again, let's look at some passages from the Old Testament, from the book of Psalms. Now, the book of Psalms is a book that's devoted to worship, isn't it? And so these are songs and poems that are used in worship. Did you know that the word thank, thanks, or thank, or thanksgiving, or those kinds of words appear more in the book of Psalms than any, of the, any other book in the Bible? About 60 times in the book of Psalms. We'll just notice a few of them. The 139th Psalm in verse 14. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works and my soul knows it very well. I will give thanks to you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. The 138th Psalm, verses 1 and 2. I will give you thanks with all my heart. I will sing praises to you before the gods. I will bow down toward your holy temple and give thanks to your name for your loving kindness and your truth. For you have magnified your word according to all your name. And so again, just giving thanks in worship for what God has done. The 136th Psalm, verses 1 through 3. Give thanks to the Lord. Here's a call to the worshipers. Give thanks to the Lord for He is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the God of gods for His loving kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the Lord of lords for His loving kindness is everlasting. Over and over again, give thanks to God. I think we could say, without fear of too much contradiction, our worship is not complete until we give thanks. Can, you, can we say that? Our worship is not complete until we give God thanks for what He's done for us. All right, let's go back to the book of Revelation and let's 
look at the next section that has to do with worship. The 15th chapter and verses 3 and 4. Revelation 15 verses 3 and 4. We'll back up. We'll start in verse 1 so we can kind of get the whole thought. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw something like a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had been victorious over the beast and his image and the number of his name, we're not going to worry too much about those things, standing on the sea of glass holding harps of God. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, here's their worship, Great and marvelous are your works, O Lord God, the Almighty. Righteous and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations will come and worship before you. For your righteous acts have been revealed. Again, we're not going to get into the details about uh, the, uh, uh, the, the, you know, the more cryptic things in this passage simply to say that here's another passage that talks about God's work being finished. The wrath of God is finished. And so it depicts a time when the work of God is completed. The last word has been said on this matter, whatever this issue is, and nothing more can be added. The struggle is over, and the war has been won. And so the wrath of God has been poured out. The, the war is over. That's the last word on the matter. And God's people now break out in worship because God has provided them with the victory. In this particular passage, it's the work of God, the acts of God, the ways of God that are highlighted. Look at verse 3. Great and marvelous are your works. Righteous and true are your ways. And then at the end of verse 4, your righteous acts have been revealed. And so here the worshipers are highlighting God's work, His ways, His acts. We worship God because of the things that He has accomplished, because of the things that He's done. Now let's go back to the book of Psalms and look at a couple of other passages that emphasize that very same thing. The 150th Psalm, the very last Psalm, verse 2. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Turn back earlier in the book, the 75th Psalm. 75th Psalm, and we're going to look at uh, verse 1. The 75th Psalm, verse 1. We give you thanks uh, to you, O God, for your name is ear, uh, your name is near. Men declare your wondrous works. And so all through the Psalms, we can cite others, but that's enough to establish the point. God is praised because of what He has done. God is praised because of His works. In this particular passage in Revelation chapter 19, the work involves God's vindication of His people and the defeat of God's enemies. But there are other works that are worthy of our attention and our, our praise. Think about God's works on a large scale. What is God, what big things has God done? Well, He's created everything. We've already seen Him being worshipped because He's the Creator. And that would be included in God's works as, as well. Wouldn't it? And so He created everything. I think about God's work in Noah's day, in the flood. Just, just an incredible work of God, a mighty deed. All things that 
that breathed uh, air on the ground, you know, they, it, it was all destroyed through God's power. The development of Israel. That's another great work and mighty work of God. Here's a man who's 100 years old and his wife is 90 years old. They don't have any children, but God provides them with a child. And through that child, through that one child, this entire nation develops. So God did that. God is responsible for the development of Israel. He brings them out of Egypt. Remember all the ten plagues? He brings them to the to the uh, brink of the Red Sea, and then he divides the sea, and they walk through on dry ground, and the Egyptian army then is drowned as they try to follow. And so, okay, just think of the work of God, the acts of God, the works of God on this grand scale. We think about that, think about it seriously. Well, yeah, he's worthy, isn't he? He's worthy of our worship. But think about what he's done on an individual level. I think about David and Goliath. And here's the individual David, just a young man. He takes this stone, slings it, hits the giant. He falls down dead. God, God provided David. And David acknowledges that. God provided David with that ability. Think about Elijah, the prophets of Baal, Hezekiah, and the Assyrian army. Hezekiah prays 185,000 Assyrians. They, uh, they die in one night. Uh, removing the threat that they posed against Jerusalem. So think about what God did on a big scale. Think about what God has done on an individual level. Think about what God has done in the life of Christ. Born of a virgin. The miracles that Christ did. Especially His resurrection and atonement. And so think about that as we worship God. Think about His works. And then, of course, we want to make this a personal thing as well. Think about what God has done for you individually. Think about the physical blessings that God provides you with. Just the daily blessings, day, daily bread, day-to-day blessings that come from God. Think, think, about, think about what God has done for you on a spiritual way as well. Think about where you might be without His work in our lives. Where, where would you be without God's work in your life? Where, where would you be? And when we think about all of that, we think about God's work on a, a big scale, an individual level, and then a personal level. It's no wonder that we bow before Him and we worship Him. Just like these did. They worship God and praise God because of the things, because of His work. Well, I've, I've moved ahead. You know, I get teased by the way that I handle the, the slides on the projector. Sometimes people tease me because I'm way behind, and then I say, well, you know, we talked about that, we talked about that, and now today, you know, I've moved ahead. Just can't, uh, just can't manage the technology, I suppose. But let's go to Revelation 19. Let's look at the couple of verses there that we want to highlight. We're going to begin in verse 1. After these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven. So just imagine that. I heard a loud, a great multitude. Just, just think about how that must have sounded to John. And they're saying, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. You know, it's, it's like they, they can't heap up enough words to honor God. <laughs> salvation and honor and glory and dominion and might and wisdom and power and they can't think of enough words to attribute to God. But here, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Because of His, judge, because his judgments are true and righteous, 
For he has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke goes up forever and ever. Hallelujah is a worship word. It simply means to praise God. Yah being a shortened form of Yahweh or Jehovah. And then the first part of the word simply means to, to praise. Give praise to Yah. Give praise, give praise to the Lord. And so here's a passage again that's describing their worship. Notice again, after these things. And so again, this is at the completion of a process. That is, after the fall of Babylon, the harlot, who is... Uh, uh, the word Babylon stands for Rome in this particular passage. Roman culture was very immoral and ungodly, violently opposed to Christians, described as the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth, full of blasphemous names, drunk with the blood of saints. In chapter 17, verses 2 through 6, she is the opposite of truth and righteousness. Now God executes His judgments according to truth and righteousness. And so he takes vengeance or comes in vengeance against someone like the harlot or the Roman Empire who stands for the very opposite of truth and righteousness. And so in this particular passage, God has utterly defeated the harlot. And so the great multitude of saints worships God because they've seen God judging her in truth and righteousness. God's people have an appreciation for qualities like truth and righteousness. You see, we have embraced the truth. That's why we take, that's why we accept the gospel. We embrace the truth and what is right. We live by what is right. We are interested in seeing what is right executed and established in the earth. And so when we see God acting according to truth and righteousness in a definitive and powerful way, we honor Him for it. And so you see that here. He has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her immorality. And he's judged her according to his truth and righteousness. And so we praise him for these things. In other words, we worship God not simply because he's powerful, not simply because he does great things, but because of the kind of God he is. And now what I mean by that is the, the character that he has. In this particular case, these attributes are highlighted, truth and righteousness. But there are other attributes of God that we worship him for as well. God is holy. In Isaiah chapter 6, you remember, Isaiah sees the vision, and they're crying out, holy, holy, holy. And so God is holy, and we see that, and we have some inkling as to what that means when it comes to God, and we praise him for his holiness. God is righteous, He is pure, He's just, He's true, He's loving. All of these qualities are infinite in Him. He's not limited in His love. He's not limited in His mercy. He's not limited in His holiness or righteousness. All of these qualities are infinite in Him. They are all perfect in Him. He's perfect in love. He's perfect in wisdom. He's perfect in all of these qualities. And they are all found in perfect combination within Him. And so mercy and compassion and justice and righteousness are all found in God in perfect combination with each other. Now that's, that's more, 
That's more than we can understand, I'm, I'm sure. In fact, you might remember the 139th Psalm in verse 6 where David simply says, Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. And so when I try to think about all of that in God, it's just, it's beyond me. Others might be able to grasp it better than I can, no doubt. But uh, it's, it's impressive. And so because of the kind of God He is, we worship, we worship Him. And then the next one, which is the last one, last passage. So we've gone from the very beginning of the book of Revelation, then in the middle of the book of Revelation we find these beings breaking out in worship, and then, and then here at the end of the book of Revelation we find it again, Revelation 19, we'll begin reading in verse 6. Then I heard something like the voice of the great multitude, and like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, there's our worship word again, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns, and then, and then he goes on. And what I want to, we've, we've looked at a lot of these before, Hallelujah, the Lord, God, we've seen that, Almighty, we've seen God reigning. And what I want to emphasize out of this is that He's our God. That's a simple, straightforward statement. Caesar doesn't reign. Presidents don't reign. Kings don't reign. They might be powerful by worldly standards. One of them might be the most powerful man on the earth. But again, we are mere weaklings compared to the Almighty who reigns from His throne forever. And that God is our God. It's not an impersonal, distant, disconnected God. Some people have thought of God in that way, so far above us, so far beyond us. He surely doesn't have anything to do with us. He's distant. He's impersonal. He's disconnected from us. No, no. That's not the picture of God we find in the Bible and in this passage. He is our God. He's not the God of another nation of people. You know, in the Old Testament you find that sometimes. You find, for example, Chemosh, the God of Moab, or Dagon, the God of the Philistines, or Marduk, the God of the Babylonians, or Baal, the God of the Canaanites. He's not the God of some other nation. He's our, he's our God. Which suggests that He's in a loving relationship with us. When we pray, we pray our Father. No, not somebody else's Father. Our Father who is in heaven. He blesses us in special ways. He provides for us. He protects us. 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 16, he simply says, I will be their God and they will be my people. There's that special loving relationship described once again. The 100th Psalm says we are His children and the sheep of His pasture. Now we didn't earn this or work for it, or achieve it by human effort, or works of righteousness, which we've done ourselves. But God loved us, and He took us to Himself. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 1 illustrates that. John says, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason the world doesn't know us because it didn't know Him. Think about the love that God had for us that we should be called children of God, and we are. You know, it's an honor to be a child of the King, isn't it? <laughs> that would be a great honor, wouldn't it, 
to be a child of the King, but that's exactly what we are. You see, our God, the Almighty, reigns. The kings don't reign. The presidents don't reign. The dictators don't reign. They may think they do, but they don't. Our God reigns. And so we worship Him because He is our God. And so here I think are, are seven passages. Well, we've kind of grouped them into seven, seven sections. Now let's just think about them just, just briefly once again. Holy is the Lord God, the Almighty. Worthy are you, for you created all things. Worthy are you to take the scroll, for you were slain. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty. Great and amazing are your deeds. Hallelujah, God's judgments are true and righteous. Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. How many of those are about us? You see, worship's not about us, is it? Worship's not about us. Our worship is about God. It's about who God is. It's about what kind of God He is. It's about what He's done. It's about what He's done for us. And our response to that is simply, thank you. Let me bow down before you and praise your name and give you the glory and the honor and the dominion and the power and the wisdom and every other similar kind of word that I can think of. Because that's what you're worthy of. If we find our worship lacking, you know, if we find our worship just kind of boring, going through the motions, maybe the problem is with us. Because see, our focus is not on Him. And our focus is not on who He is and what kind of God He is and what He's done, and what He's done for me. If we can think about that and think about that seriously, I, I, don't, I don't have any, <laughs> any hesitation in saying our worship is going to be everything it should be. Finally, in Revelation chapter 19 and verse 5, it says, Give praise to our God, all you His servants. Give praise to our God. That's a good way to end, isn't it? Everybody, give praise to our God, all you His servants. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we're thankful for this opportunity. We're thankful for Your Word, that we have access to it, that we can read it and understand it. We're thankful, Father, that You've revealed it to us. We're thankful for passages like the ones that we've been thinking about that, that describe what worship should be and that help us Father, in our efforts to worship You, to make our worship what it ought to be. Our Father, help us when we come together for worship to think not about ourselves, but to think about You. That You are the Almighty. That You are the Creator. That You are our Creator. That You and Your Lamb reign on the throne. That You are worthy, along with the Lamb, to accept our praise. Help us, Father, to bow before you and give thanks to you. Help us to understand the great works that you've done and the kind of God that you are, all your attributes that make you the kind of God worthy of our worship. And Father, help us to appreciate the fact that you've taken us to yourself so that you are our God. Not distant, not far removed, not impersonal, but our God. 
And Father, help us to think very seriously about these things each time that we bow before you in worship. And may we give you the honor and the glory and the power and the dominion that is rightfully, rightfully yours, both now and in eternity. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you're here tonight...